Pennsylvania, Comporter County, presiding with the Honorable Elizabeth F. Davis of Lake County. <laughs> So we're here today on the matter of Brandon Pritcher versus State of Indiana. Kara Schaefer Weineke is here representing Mr. Pritchard, and representing the state is Mr. Yoke. Are you ready to proceed? Yes. The floor is yours, Ms. Weineke. Thank you. May it please the court, with your permission, I wish to reserve five minutes for rebuttal. Brandon Pritcher had a seven-year-old son, LP. Mr. Pritcher believed, one evening Mr. Pritcher believed his son had stolen some money from him and hidden his firearm. When LP would not tell his father where the money and the gun were, Mr. Pritcher punished LP. First, he spanked him on the bottom with his hand. Later, he spanked LP with a belt over his underpants. When LP still would not tell his father where the money and the gun were, Mr. Pritcher said he slapped or popped, is the word he used, LP in the head with his open hand several times. Sometime after, LP went into cardiac arrest. Mr. Pritcher got scared and waited several minutes before calling 911. He performed CPR on his child, uh, but it was to no avail, and LP later died as a result of a bleed inside of his skull. The state charged Mr. Pritcher with several offenses, including murder, neglect of a dependent, and battery. At his jury trial, Mr. Test Mr. Pritchard testified to slapping LP in the head, but said that the fatal injury occurred in a different way. He said LP was angry and scared, locked himself in his bedroom, and began banging his head on his metal bed frame. Did Mr. Pritchard say that to the police department? He did not, not in his, well, I think he said that he went in there and he heard a sound uh, and he believed that that's what LP was doing, was banging his head. The jury returned verdicts on all counts and Mr. Pritchard was only sentenced on the murder conviction and received the maximum of 65 years. The murder conviction should be reversed for two reasons. First, the prosecutor misstated the law as to, uh, in his last words to the jury, as to what he had to prove in order to convict Mr. Pritcher. And what are those words? He said that, so the prosecutor said that Mr. Pritcher only had to be aware of a high probability that he was hitting his child and not that he was killing the child or that there was a high probability that he was killing the child when he hit him in the head. And there was no objection to this at trial, correct? There was not, unfortunately. So no. fundamental error is a pretty high burden. It's a meet. very high burden. Yes. Why do you think it's appropriate here? Fun it's a fundamental error because the misstatement was so, uh, so profound in that it lessened the state's burden of proof so much that he, it was impossible for Mr. Pritchard to have a fair trial. And so that's why we believe fundamental error. Was the jury properly instructed that they had to show that he, he knew or had a high probability, Mr. Pritchard, that when he hit this child that... Um, he was going to kill him? The jury was given the pattern jury instruction, which gives the definition of knowingly. Uh, what it says exactly was, a person engages in conduct knowingly if when he engages in this conduct, he is aware of a high probability that he is doing so. The problem is, with that 
instruction doesn't necessarily clear up the misstatement that the prosecutor made because it doesn't define what that conduct is. But the, court, but the court's final instruction number six, though, talked about the charged offense elements of murder. And it did say that defendant Brandon Pritchard knowingly or intentionally killed LP. So that, along with the uh, definition of knowingly, does that not solve the issue? No, because the prosecutor's words, that was the last words to the jury, and while it says you have to knowingly kill, when you couple that with what the prosecutor told the, uh, told the jury, you just have to know that you're hitting him and that that resulted in his death. But the jury instruction also said that lawyer statements are not evidence. It did, yes, except the fact that that misstatement was never clarified. And usually judges say that when they're referring to the facts. You can argue kind of the facts back and forth. Here the prosecutor was referring to the law. This is what the law is. Um, so were there any other instructions tendered to correct what you're saying is maybe a misinformation that the jury was given? By defense counsel, were, were any right. other? No. No, defense counsel had tendered some different instructions, but not on this particular okay, issue. so we're still back to fundamental error. Can you cite me any case where we have reversed on fundamental error where we found a properly instructed jury? Where we found a properly, a properly instructed jury? Not off the top of my head. I can't, no. Okay, so that's a big, rare request that you're making. It is. Normally, though, when you're looking at prosecutorial misconduct and closing argument, it's usually something that maybe the prosecutor said, maybe a flippant comment or something like that. This is just different. It's, it's above and beyond what I would normally see. And so it essentially told the jury, you just have to find what you found with all of these other counts in order for this to be murder. And it really lessened the state's burden at that point. So it's, a, it's, a, it's more egregious, I think, than what the run-of-the-mill prosecutorial misconduct claim. Does it matter that he was charged with several lesser included offenses and that um, in closing argument the prosecutor is saying this is the evidence and these are the, the what six charges that he was charged with? Is that yes. correct? Yep. And so then the, the court sentenced him on murder the highest so does it matter that there were six lesser or five lesser included charges charged at the same time? Does that matter? In terms of the misstatement of the law? Correct. No, because I think what the prosecutor said is actually a correct statement of the law for those other charges. At least that is my, my belief. But the prosecutor was referring specifically to the murder charge when he made the misstatement. And the reason it's, it's an error is because it is a misstatement. All of these other charges, yes, you know, the, Mr. Pritchard only had to know the, the conduct that he was doing, not necessarily what the result would be. Um, but so is your remedy that, uh, that the murder be uh, set aside and that the other convictions be reinstated? Yes, Your Honor. And for him to return for resentencing, because there would obviously be a question if any of those charges were double jeopardy. Can a prosecutor's statement, whatever it is, ever override a correct judge's um, instructions to the jury? I don't. I wouldn't look at it as overriding, but 
if if the jury instruction is not clear enough to correct the misstatement or the statement that the prosecutor made that's when the jury is that that's where the misconduct has occurred there was nothing that corrected what the prosecutor said so reading this this instruction yes they were instructed you have to the state has to prove these elements knowingly killed but then the prosecutor told them no he just had to knew he just had to know he was hitting him in the head he didn't have to know he was going to kill him and then when you add the knowingly requirement it doesn't really or the knowingly instruction it doesn't clarify what the prohibited conduct is normally that's not an issue it's obvious but in this case where you've got all of these other charges and the murder it we we treat murder differently just based on the mens rea i mean that's what makes it different from all of these other Your counts. first and second issue kind of blend together so can you talk to us a little bit about why you think the evidence was not sufficient to support the conviction the evidence isn't sufficient because there really wasn't a lot of evidence at all as to mr pritchard's the only evidence that was really presented is to mr pritchard's mindset at the time he was angry um, and he admitted in his interrogation he lost control but the only thing that we have is that he has he hit the child with an open hand two or three times on the head we don't we don't have an idea of how much force it would have taken what's the size differential between mr. Pritchard and the child mr. Pritchard is much larger I believe he was over 200 pounds the child was I think 70 or 80 smaller child he uh, LP was only seven so there is a size differential but the I believe it was the forensic pathologist who said it's not so much the force that a person gets hit with it's the force that's that's important is the um, the inside the head the brain moving inside the head so you can hurt yourself without a lot of force depending on what you hit or what hits you but the, the jury probably decided that they didn't believe mr. Pritchard about the child banging his head against the uh, bedpost so isn't this a question of jury uh, of a jury making a decision on a fact that we can't overturn why I think that there wasn't sufficient evidence, though, is there's really no other theory as to what did happen. Well, um, he, he had bruises from head to toe. He bruises did. on his ears as if he was shaken. Yes, he did. And most of the bruising inside, uh, under the scalp, but above the skull, was what they called the focal injuries, which could have been caused by the slap. They don't, the medical experts didn't know what particular injury caused the bleeding inside the head. But the forensic pathologist said that all of these bruising and what happened was a result of child abuse. Yes, that's a term that they use, the abusive head trauma, yeah. That's not the legal conclusion as to whether or not, that, that doesn't uh, deal with his mens rea though. He does not dispute that he hit his child in anger. So what more would the state have had to have proven to have reached the level of sufficiency? I think the state would have had to have proven that he used some sort of force that would have made it obvious to him that what he was doing was killing the child. We treat intentional and knowing murder the same. And so you, there ha it has to be Could some- Could the jury have relied though on the extent of the injuries to the child to have made that conclusion? Extended injuries is in the injuries on the rest of his body. Right. 
There was an explanation for some of the injuries. Some of them could have been from the resuscitation efforts and also LP, LP played um, football. So some of them weren't injury related. Now on the head, uh, you know, the, the experts agreed it could be from the slaps. Um, the other injuries could be as well. But don't we look at the circumstantial evidence to determine the mens rea, whether it's intent or knowingly killed? Um, there was blood everywhere. Um, that was the evidence. He texted his girlfriend that he had killed LP. Um, he said he lost it, I believe was his words. He, I mean, this is all comes together with the injuries. So the blood was related to, we assume, a nosebleed. Uh, there was no bleeding outside of his head or from his head outside his body. And there was yeah, blood on a belt. Yes, which pro and he did have some pretty noticeable bruising on his bottom. We did see that in the exhibits. Uh, he also, the, the text that he sent to his ex-girlfriend, I think said he accidentally killed LP. This was before he called police. And at that point, yes, LP was dead at that point. Um, he couldn't be revived. But so many crimes happen where no one else is there. And so you have to rely on circumstantial evidence. And also, you're now talking about intent and what he intended. And there's no way to go inside a person's head and determine their intent. You have to look at all of the evidence and the circumstantial evidence. Isn't the circumstantial evidence enough here? Here's how usually the prosecutor proves these cases, especially in abusive head trauma cases. They will have an expert come in and testify to the level of force that, would, that it would take in order to cause that particular injury. And then they will say, that force was so great, a person had to have known what they were doing. It, it would be impossible for them not to. That's what's missing in this case. We don't, the best we have is we don't know what, what caused the injury or what kind of force would have, it would have taken to cause a hemorrhage just above the brain, so under the skull. He didn't have a skull fracture, so that wasn't the source of the, of the bleeding. We don't know if these you know, slaps on the head could be enough to actually cause this. We're assuming because that's why he died. And just real quickly, I see your yellow lights on, but before you sit down, you have a third issue, the appropriateness of Pritchard's sentence. He was sentenced to the maximum of 65. Why is that inappropriate? Oh, Mr. The killing of any child is egregious, and so I certainly won't say that the nature of the fence is not egregious. It is. Uh, but it's obvious that Mr. Pritchard, when you look at it with his character, um, he had some mental health issues. Uh, he had anger control issues. He had trauma, uh, traumatic brain injury from prior abuse that he himself had suffered. He had, you could even see in the interrogation and at sentencing, he had some anger issues that, you know, he's very animated in his testimony and in his discussion with the police. He loved his son. He said so several times. I think he said that he's the only so thing I have. you're arguing only on the character of the offender. So I'm, there's nothing about the nature of the offense that would tip in favor of your client? I'm arguing that it's obvious that he did not intend to kill LP. And I don't think anybody suggested that he did. We should punish people who intend to kill people and a, that should but be the what jury the, disagreed. So in order to get there, wouldn't we have to reverse his murder conviction? No, I'm saying that when we're looking at what's the appropriate sentence, we should, since we treat knowing and intentional murder the same, we should treat, we, 
those who intend to kill, and it's obvious that they intend to kill, we should, we should treat them a little bit harsher than we would someone who, you know, for whatever reason. So you're saying the, the fact that it's not premeditated should go in your client's favor under the nature of the offense. Yes, and then, of course, considering it in relation to his character as well, it's really hard to separate those, but And what sentence do you deem appropriate? For Mr. Pritchard, I mean, pro obviously the advisory, 55 years, is always considered sort of our starting point. That would be, in my opinion, the max, I would think. He's got so much other mitigating evidence that I think that would be the most. So that thank would be. you, Ms. Rutmeinecke. I'm sorry? Thank you. Oh, thank you. Thank you. We'll see you back for your rebuttal time. Mr. Yoke. Thank you, Your Honors. May it please the court. The prosecutor did not misstate the law in his closing argument. And there Why was no not? I'm sorry? You're saying he... Why not? Why not? So we, we view the statements in the context of the entire argument. Um, and the prosecutor quoted the but definition... what he said wasn't quite accurate, correct? Taken, taken aside and, and, and out of context, it could be viewed as inaccurate, yes. Um, we have to look at the entire statement in the context of, of the entire argument. And one of the things that the prosecutor did was to quote the definition of knowingly from the jury instruction. Um, what the prosecutor said is said, this is knowingly. A person engages in conduct knowingly. If he engages in this conduct, he's aware of a high probability of doing so. But then afterwards, he then said, you, ha you have to show that he knowingly hit his child, which is, which is much different than knowing that he would kill his child. Yes. Um, and, and I think what the prosecutor also does is uh, pairs it back up to uh, does result in death. And the prosecutor says, then the other element is, did it result in death? And what I think the prosecutor means when he says, doesn't have to know that's what's going to happen, is he's talking about certainty. Um, Pritchard doesn't have to know with 100% certainty that when he's bashing his child's head against the wall, that it's 100% certain going to cause death. He has to be aware that there's a that he has his conduct has a high probability of causing that death. And we're assuming the bashing the head against the wall because of the dents in the wall that were found in the thermostat. That is the evidence that um, I think the jury reasonably inferred that that is what happened. Was um, there any DNA on that on those dents? Anything found? Um, LP's blood was directly below one of those dents. Um, so there, there was uh, blood, his blood was on the wall um, immediately below one of those two dents. Um, and both of those dents, there's, there's actually a thermostat in the photograph, um, and the dents are just below that, and it's about the size that LP stood. He was four foot five, um, about 77 pounds is what um, the doctor said, and, and Pritchard was six foot two and 247 pounds. Um, so he's a grown man who um, can exert a lot of force. And we do look to that sort of factor uh, when we're talking about does someone know that their conduct could cause uh, death? And when someone of that size is hitting a child in the head repeatedly against a wall. So you're not conceding that the statements by the prosecutor were misconduct? I do not believe that they were misconduct. Okay, so, so let's yeah. argue that they were. Do, how do we, but can we, just before you do yes, that, a harmless error, I mean, how can you read this any differently? He is aware of a high probability of what he's doing. 
He doesn't have to know that when he hits that kid on the back of the head, it's going to kill him. doesn't have to know that. He just has to know that he, when he's throwing that kid down or against the wall or whatever, that he's aware that he's doing it. I mean, how can you read that any differently than he's trying to, uh, the prosecutor's trying to say you have to knowingly hit, not knowingly kill. Because of what the prosecutor says right after, and right after the prosecutor says, if he'd, that Pritcher said he knew if he'd wait an hour that LP would be dead, right? He said, and that, so, so we're talking about in the context of the entire argument, um, and that's what we look to uh, when we're reviewing these cases, is, is what is the context of the entire argument? Um, and the context of the argument is, is that the prosecutor's pulling everything together. And, and I will agree that it is an unartful statement and when we're talking about murder, right? Um, but I don't think that the prosecutor is misstating law entirely. Um, I think what the prosecutor is Entirely? So is he misstating it a little bit? I think it's, it's sort of fleeting and unartful, I, I will say that. I don't think that he is um, saying that if, if, we, if we look at just those sentences, I, I would agree that if we pulled those out and looked at them in isolation, yes. Um, so if you're going to land, you know, put your flag down on this area, mm -hmm. right? I'm not sure that's a good place to put your flag down. Mm -hmm. So let's go down to, to what Judge Weissman is asking, and that is, would this be harmless if it were an error? So, um, if, if I may, I'm taking that as if we are in a position, or, I want to clarify. We are talking about fundamental error uh, in this particular case because there was no objection to this right. statement. So um, we're going to assume that the prosecutor did commit misconduct sure. for the right. sake of this argument. Sure. Um, assuming that there was misconduct, there was no fundamental error. Um, there's nothing that the prosecutor said that would have so overwhelmed the jury as to make the entire trial unfair. Um, and that's what we're talking about in fundamental error. But does is it not matter that this is murder, the highest charge? There's a difference if this happens in a misdemeanor trial um, as opposed to a murder trial. Would you agree with me? I, I think that if there was a fundamental error, I think any fundamental error of due process is, is matters regardless of what the trial is. Um, so, I, I mean, I understand the concern is that the, this is much more a severe charge, um, but I think anytime time uh, we're talking about the fairness of a trial, that's the most important thing that we have to do in, in criminal trials is ensure that they're fair. You, you don't think there's a difference, though, um, if you make a misstatement in a misdemeanor case as opposed to a murder case where you're dealing with the highest penalty outside of this was not charged as life without parole or the death penalty, but he did receive the maximum sentence for murder? Um, my review of, of the cases and when, when we look at back at, at what um, happens in fundamental error is it does not seem to, to matter. I think it it shows up more. Uh, what is the in, role the jury instructions did? Sure. Can you have fundamental error with a properly instructed jury? Um, the only case that, that I could find that there was fundamental error with a, a correct jury instruction was a Supreme Court case, Castillo versus State, and that dealt with a life without parole sentencing hearing um, and there, there's obviously since we're dealing with life without parole the the way that the Supreme Court analyzes it is 
they found that the life without parole sentence was inappropriate and then analyzed fundamental error anyway um, and said that in that case the prosecutors what the Supreme Court identified as deliberate misstatements told the jury um, not to balance mitigating and aggravating circumstances. Because in capital cases, we do sentencing a little differently. Right, right. But, uh, but in a case that didn't involve a capital punishment, you have not found any examples where a properly instructed jury, we have fundamental error? Correct, I have not found that. Um, what, what I have found in, in reviewing fundamental error cases where um, this court does find a misstatement of the law is that um, the jury instruction has cured that misstatement assuming a correct jury instruction, which we do have here, a correct jury instruction. Um, so there was not an objection to the statement. There was not a request for a instruction to the jury to disregard that statement. Uh, is that part of the trial, the trial strategy of a public or a, a defender when you have charged this person with six different types of act that he could have been convicted of? Mm -hmm. I, I think that it could be. Um, it, it certainly could be strategic. Um, if we look at what the defense attorney did in this case, he did object later, um, and he may have been wanting to focus on that particular objection, which had to do with um, the prosecutor talking to the jury about when death occurs, um, because in this case it was relevant. Um, so it's, it's possible that, that that was a strategy, was that the defense attorney did not want to draw attention to it. Did the trial court have a duty on its own to say something? If there was a fundamental error, um, I, I think that's one of the things that we look at, right? What we say is, if there was fundamental error, that's, that's what we look to. Should the trial court have jumped in, stopped the prosecutor, and admonished the jury or declared a mistrial? Um, and the trial court could have done that, but did not do that. Correct, because there was no fundamental error. Was it egregious enough that it would make not a fair trial if the judge didn't jump in there? No, not in this case. Um, because the jury instructions were correct, and because the jury instructions were the last thing that um, the jury heard. So those jury instructions also uh, told the jury um, five times. Uh, in the preliminary and final instructions that the instructions were their source of the law. Uh, it told the jury four times that the statements and arguments of counsel were not evidence. And it specifically told the jury that the closing argument was a persuasive statement by the lawyers that the jury was free to accept or reject. Um, so the instructions were very clear and, and repeated that the instructions are the law and that's what the jury is to consider. So how are we to take the confusion, and again, I know that you're not going to concede that it was a misstatement of the law, but it was certainly a little inarticulate, maybe inartful, and potentially confusing. Yes. So how, how do we weigh that in to Mr. Pritchard's uh, issue on sufficiency of the evidence? Because that also hits at the mens rea, and they all seem a little interconnected to me. Mm -hmm. Sure. I think the place to start is the jury instructions because the jury instructions correctly lay out um, the offense of murder that um, Pritchard had, that the jury had to find that Pritchard knowingly or intentionally killed LP. And there was an instruction on what intentional meant and there's an instruction on what knowing meant. And so when we look at the instruction, if Pritchard engages in conduct that he 
is aware of a high probability is, you know, could kill his child, uh, the jury could have found that. And, and the evidence clearly showed that. Um, I think that uh, it's already been discussed uh, this morning or this afternoon that um, the only evidence really that, that this was not knowing was based on Pritchard's own self-serving testimony. Um, all of the physical evidence and the expert opinion of two expert doctors, uh, a forensic pathologist and a child abuse expert, clearly disproved, showed that Pritchard's theory, told the jury that Pritchard's theory was impossible, that the only way that these uh, injuries could have been caused is a high-velocity impact, a repeated impact, uh, against a hard object. And I think what the evidence shows is that that object was the wall, most likely. Um, so turning to the sentence, uh, why is the maximum not inappropriate in this case? I to make sure I say right. Why is the maximum not inappropriate? Um, well, first, it is Pritchard's burden to show that it's not. Um, it's, it's his job to show this court that uh, his sentence is inappropriate. Um, we look at the nature of the offense and the character of the offender. Um, and again, I don't think anybody disputes that this is an egregious offense. Um, it is. How do you respond to Ms. Winnicky's statement that because it was an intentional murder, it was maybe more knowingly murder, that that should weigh a little bit in Mr. Pritchard's favor on the nature of the offense? Sure. Um, I, think, I think an analogy um, is, is sort of what I've been able to think about this because I think it's, it's, it's a good point, right? Um, and the analogy that I would draw is, let's say we have two 80-year-old mafia bosses in a nursing home and they're rivals and one decides to push the morphine button until the other one dies. It's obviously an intentional murder, um, but that man just never wakes up from, from his sleep and he's at the end of his life. This is a prolonged beating of his own seven-year-old child. Um, he was repeatedly beaten for a lengthy period of time and this is his father doing it. Um, Pritchard vastly out, outweighs and is vastly taller than LP. But uh, we know that Mr. Pritchard had a uh, very tough past. He was abused as a child. He uh, had dissociative issues. Mm -hmm. uh, he had anger issues. He had psychological issues mm -hmm. as a result of how he was treated as a child and the abuse that he received. Mm -hmm. How should that impact a sentence? Sure. Um, and those are I think what we have to look at is, is the standard, um, and what the standard asks us to do is to show that um, he needs to show that he has uh, examples of positive character uh, to, to overcome what the trial, the sentence that the trial court imposed. So, so examples of, of good character that he has, he has to show that as opposed to an absence of bad character. Um, that's, that's what we look to on the inappropriateness review. Um, to say that the that his sentence is inappropriate. So we don't look to his life at all and the abuse that he got um, when we determine whether or not a sentence is inappropriate, what you're saying. So if someone comes up and has been sexually abused for many, many years mm -hmm. as a child, mm -hmm. uh, he becomes 19 mm -hmm. and he commits a battery, mm -hmm. we don't take into account at all his abuse that he received? I think we could. I, I, I'm, what I'm saying is that in this particular case, um, 
it does not overcome, uh, it does not show that his particular sentence is inappropriate in this case. I, I agree with you that there is, there are hypotheticals out there where um, that, uh, that is a substantial mitigating circumstance. Um, what I'm suggesting is that in this particular case it is not a substantial mitigating circumstance. Because of the way that Pritchard is doing this to a seven-year-old child, this is to take your hypothetical of a 19-year-old who commits a battery and has been battered his or her whole life. Um, you know, I, I think that that's different. Um, and, and I think that if we, we, can, we can place a victim in that case that looks different too, right? We can say that this victim is an older family member who's yelling at the 19-year-old, and then the 19-year-old punches the older family member. That's certainly different, right? Um, what we're looking at in this particular case is a grown man who beat a seven-year-old to death. And he has not a lot of criminal history. I mean, when, we, when, when someone gets the maximum, mm -hmm. I mean, the case law says over and over again, it should be given to the worst offender, mm -hmm. right? And he's got, what, a minor consuming alcohol charge as an adult mm -hmm. and uh, sexual battery and criminal confinement as a juvenile, so that's pretty bad. But don't we look at the whole picture here and look at, uh, is this really the worst offender, I guess, is my question. Sure, no, I understand. Um, I think that the, the phrasing, um, worst offender, worst of the worst, um, is uh, so, somewhat rhetorical um, and, and in a way that, that we can use it as as a shorthand to talk about, is this sentence inappropriate? Um, I think we can always hypothetically come up with someone whose character is worse. Certainly, there are others out there who have worse criminal histories. Uh, I think what would show that his sentence maybe was inappropriate was if he had zero criminal history. Um, I, I think that's a different uh, situation, potentially. Um, in, in his case, the history that he does have, especially as a juvenile, is participating in a rape. Um, and the, um, his, his ex-girlfriend uh, testified during the sentencing hearing about a history of, of batteries that he committed against her. Um, so we have this history of intimate or household violence that, that Pritchard has. And what his character includes is not just his criminal history, but what his conduct history is. And I think what that shows us is that his sentence is not inappropriate. Do we look at the reason why he was beating his own child? Is, does that come into play when we look at the nature of the offense? I think that that would require us to accept uh, his version of events, and I don't know that the trial court is required to accept that, and I don't think that this court is required to accept that. Um, certainly, he is trying to you know, with his statements to police and his testimony in front of the jury and the judge at sentencing, um, explain himself in a way that he thinks makes sense, but I submit that the evidence doesn't necessarily support that theory. Um, and, and in all honesty, the idea that, that he keeps hitting his child so that his child will say something, I, I mean, it, it smells like trying to beat a confession out of somebody. I'm sorry, it sounds it, like it, what? It sounds like trying to beat a confession out of someone, um, which I, 
I think shows poor character. Um, and I apologize, I've lost track of our question. Uh, I think you answered it, thank you. Uh, I'm any... interested in inappropriate sentences in 7b and what role we should play, and I'd like to talk about that. Sure. I mean, in one county, this would be 65 years. Mm -hmm. in, in another county, it might be 50 years. Mm -hmm. And so we have this uh, constitutional authority to look and maybe even up sentences. Mm -hmm. Do we have that? I mean, is that what 7B should be? I mean, this is a bad offender, no question about it. Is it worse if we have a mafia person, as your example, versus another mafia person? Way worse, right? With a long criminal history. What role does 7B have in equalizing sentences between counties? Sure. I, I think what the review is is to, um, what we would say is leaven the outliers, right? To, to look and see, is there, is there something that is sort of sticking up uh, in a place that it shouldn't, right? Um, I see my time is up. You can finish your sentence. Um, and, and that, I think, is the role of, of inappropriateness review, right? And, and to, to look at the balance of, of sentences and say, is this one too far out there? Um, and I don't think that this one is. Uh, with that, we would ask that this court affirm the trial court. Thank, Thank you. you very much. Ms. Wynicki. May it please the court. <clears throat> I'd like to address your question, Judge Vedic, about what role we this court plays with respect to reviewing and revising. I think you have to think about it in terms of also Article I, Section 18, which applies to this court and to the rest of our government, which says that our criminal code is founded on principles of reformation and not on vindication. That's part of what the review and revise authority is, is to make sure that we are acting in Indiana, all over Indiana, in a but way that- the trial court in a better position to figure that out than we are? It can be, and that's why we give trial courts deference but that doesn't mean that any decision that the trial court makes is necessarily the correct one. They have, judges have different pressures on them, and, and so you know, we take that into account. I think that's why there is a review and revise authority, is to make sure that we do leaven the outliers, but that, it, that also means making sure that- Is this an outlier? Yes, this is an outlier. Why? The, I mean, it was pretty egregious. It is egregious. His, his character, though, the, the idea that he has to prove some positive aspects, well, he has positive aspects. He's been generally law-abiding. Uh, he, he was taking care of his son. He had primary physical custody of him. His, the, that cuts both ways because he's in a position of trust with his child who, if, if we believe the jury verdict, he beat to death. This is true. Mom had problems, though. The child's mother had problems, and so really father stepped in when it seemed like the child didn't have anyone else to step in. Um, father was trying to be gainfully employed, had been until the pandemic. So it seemed Mr. Pritchard was trying to do the right things uh, and couple that with some of his mental health issues. It just, you know, as he said, he was angry and lost control. But I don't think when you're looking at, yeah, worst of the worst, we do use that term a lot, but it still has some meaning. You can certainly think of a lot of uh, intentional murders that would be worse than, than what has happened here. 
especially whenever you consider the fact that the evidence, if it was sufficient, that he intended or that he knowingly killed his child, it's, it's, it's only by circumstantial evidence you can even get there. Should we read anything into the charging information that the state has um, discretion in charging? Because they did charge a lot of lesser included offenses. So when we're looking at his sentence and whether it's inappropriate, the fact that the state charged this um, and it could have been a level three felony. Should we look at that at all? To me, there, as a former prosecutor, it's like, well, I'm gonna throw everything out there and hope that one of them sticks. Um, and sometimes, as a prosecutor, we made the decision, no, we're only gonna go for murder because we don't want a lesser. Is that anything that we should be looking at? I think you can consider, yeah, and certainly in this case, it did, fe it did seem that the prosecutor was charging a lot of different offenses to see, you know, maybe the prosecutor himself wasn't sure uh, what level of culpability he could prove based on the evidence, because again, there was a huge gap in the evidence. We, you know, uh, the state said that the medical experts claimed that uh, Mr. Pritchard, or the, the child's head hit something, hit a hard surface. Actually, the expert said, no, we can't say whether something hard hit his head or he hit something hard. There just was a, a large gap in the evidence as to how, how exactly this head injury occurred. So I want to go back to the fundamental error issue for a minute. Um, was this prosecutor's statement so egregious that the trial court should have uh, stopped it? without any objection from defense counsel. The trial court should have corrected, yes, should have stopped it and corrected, admonished the jury that actually that was wrong. And I mean, that's, we all say activist judges, we don't want activist judges. And here we have this fundamental error concept that says you should be an activist judge in, in situations. Here, though, we know that that's a misstatement of the law, or if, if that's, you know, if this court reaches that, it's a misstatement of the law. It's different than if the prosecutor's arguing over the evidence. This is not the evidence that they're arguing over. It's the law. Yes, the judge has a duty to step in. I don't think it would have been activist to, to clarify, actually, he misspoke or, you know, somehow uh, tempered it a bit. I think that it's difficult, too, because of the other offenses as well. That was a correct statement of the law as to those, but not to the murder, which was the most serious. Thank, Thank you, you, Ms. Wynicke. So we now have concluded the argument portion of this presentation, and I want to start by thanking uh, both of you, Ms. Wynicke and Mr. Yoke, for coming here uh, from Indianapolis and South uh, to and presenting a very well prepared case Pre appreciate it i also want to uh thank mr knazer as well as assistant principal jessica nigra for inviting us here uh, principal knazer you've done this for every year for a long time and we really really thank you for that um, i want to thank the um, state police trooper trooper hayes who's here to to protect us, as well as our own security, uh, Officer Rose. And I want to recognize some judges and thank them for coming here. But before I do that, uh, George Galanis, you've got to stand. 
because you've been doing a lot for this. And each of the judges, I want you to stand if, uh, as well. Judge Cantor is here. Judge Sheely is here. Judge DeBoer is here. Judge Cedia is here. Judge Parent is here. Judge Adad Lopez is here. And Magistrate Olson is here. This is unusual to have the judiciary here supporting us, and we thank you very, very much. Um, so with that, what we're going to do is we're going to come up from behind the bench, as it were, and we're going to have an opportunity to speak with you, and you can ask questions of us and uh, questions of the attorneys as well. There's one thing you need to know. You can't ask about this, quest, this case. So if you've heard all of this about the case, I'm sure you're interested in it and have questions, but you can ask no questions about it. So I apologize for that, but I can't, but we have to have independent deliber deliberations and someone can't stand up and say, I think you should do this or I think you should do that. Not a good thing. So let's uh, come out. I wish we as lawyers would be this quiet. I was sitting in a courtroom versus being yelled at by a judge to shush and, and not say anything. But it, it, 